You know, there are two different people in my life who have told me that on more than one occasion, they have found themselves accidentally praying for fictional characters that they know about. Maybe they've been reading a book recently or watching a TV show, and in their quiet time at night, thinking back on their day, they think of these people and begin to intercede for them. You know, they laugh in embarrassment when they've told me this. But it's always struck me that there's something I think worth observing here. And that is this. Because according to them, these characters become so real to them, even in their flaws and eccentricities, that they can't help but love them. And when you love somebody as a Christian, that love leads you to prayer. In other words, when they began to know these people more, when they became just not fictional depictions, but almost human in their qualities, flaws and foibles and everything, charms and eccentricities, it became people that you could love. Because they were people that you could know for all their good and bad qualities. Their love for them grew and spilled over into prayer. Now, that's kind of a silly example maybe. But I think that gets into an aspect of love that we probably don't talk about in our Western culture too much. You know, to us, love is a fairy tale. It's when two people with perfect chemistry and no uh, problems come together in such a climactic and passionate way that they'll never fight. That's what we see in all these movies. That's the expectations we have of how relationships and friendships and romances should be. That it's pure chemistry. But the reality is, to love someone truly is to know them even in their flaws and still love them despite that. It's to pray for their well-being. That's what it is to love somebody. It's to pray for their growth and their joy. And it's to pray that sincerely because the only way that you can love them is because you have first known them. How can you really, after all, love someone you don't know? And in our passage this morning, I, I think we see that happening in the prayer of Paul. All of this affectionate language of Paul, this wearing his heart on his sleeve, his earnestness, all of that is spilling over from a life filled with gratitude and love and affection and prayer because he knows the Philippians, warts and all. Now, above and beyond this, to know not only one another, human beings with all our problems, we can understand how we can love. But it's the same when it comes to God. Except He's one that has no flaws, no eccentricities, no character defects. And yet, to truly love Christ is to know Him. To know Him experientially. To know Him as your Lord and Savior. As compassionate and just. As gracious and righteous. As merciful and good. It's not only to know God on an intellectual level. It's to know Him on an experiential one. And when you love God like that, because He first loved you, 
when you see that God loves you, flaws and all, sins and all, then you can begin to understand what it's like to love one another. Sinners, all of us, as God has first loved us. So last week, we began our time in Philippians. Remember, this was a letter written to the most powerful Roman outpost in the ancient world. It was positioned in Eastern Europe and Macedonia. And the Philippians had a worldly and extravagant culture. They were dedicated to a kind of blind Roman patriotism and nationalism that celebrated their wealth and their warfare. And they prized being domineering and putting others down and having prideful spirits. That was what the culture of Philippi was like because that's what the culture of the Roman Empire was like. And yet, in the middle of that kind of exceptionalist world, here comes Paul an aging and disgraced Jewish Pharisee cast out from the upper echelon of his religious circles, and now he has to make a living working with leather scraps on the road to make tents for people. And not only that, but we infer from some of the New Testament letters, Paul probably has poor eyesight. So that probably makes him seem kind of like a doddering, aging man, I would think. And on that, he even tells us on a few occasions that he's not too great in his rhetoric. He doesn't have a public speaking ability. And on top of all that, on top of just Paul being unimpressive in his personal presentation, here he comes to this rich culture. He comes preaching a new kind of emperor. A new kind of king. One who was embarrassingly, shamefully, not lifted up high because he was a mighty general or a a noble from a fine house. No, he preaches a crucified and naked and whipped and humbled king. This king, furthermore, was born in an animal stall. And he was, in his adult life for, for some years in his ministry, was a wandering stone worker. He was known for associating not with the the best and brightest in society, but with the riffraff and taking up slave chores like washing the feet of his disciples. Something that no dignified person would do. All of this got him in so much trouble with both Jewish and Roman authorities that it culminated in his humiliating and agonizing execution on a cross outside of his capital city, the day before the biggest holiday of the year. But now, Paul preaches, this king, this emperor, is risen from the dead. And now, he's not only king over Rome, he's king over the entire world. But, he rules at the right hand of his God, invisibly, in heaven. King Jesus of Nazareth. This is the message that Paul comes preaching. And this is the man that preaches it. Think of it. The unimpressive Apostle Paul preaching this message of God's humility and love and sacrifice of this Savior who was crucified to this proud and lofty people. If anybody had ever been set up for disastrous failure and rejection, it was Paul preaching to the Philippians. 
if there was any person that should have expected to be run out of town and laughed into scorn, it was Paul. But wouldn't you know it, God took all of this foolishness, foolishness to the world at least, and worked it out in the midst of all this humility to turn these professional braggarts into one of the most humble and generous churches in the entire New Testament. If that doesn't show us God's power, if that doesn't show us the truth of the Gospel, I don't know what will. So much so that Paul, nearing the end of his ministry now, he sits in prison chains far away, and the Philippians just can't stand it. From their own suffering and languishing, they send one of their own leaders to visit Paul and to bring him a care package. They can't stand the thought of him being alone and hurting. And so this letter, we see, is Paul's response to them. Written through tears, not of pain, but of joy and gratitude at what God was accomplishing in them together. Both Paul and the Philippians, partners in the Gospel and fellow sufferers for Jesus Christ. And so after greeting them as their servant, their slave even, Paul thanks God that they remember Him as He remembers them. And so last week in verses 3-6, through we saw Him launch into this prayer of gratitude over this whole situation. That although they were all suffering, God was making something of it. And in verses 7-11, through our passage today, we see the conclusion of that thanksgiving prayer. So let's look, starting in verse 7. So he starts off this way. Again, I'll read it. Indeed, Paul says, based on everything that's come before and everything I've written before, indeed, it's right for me to think this way about all of you. Because I have you in my heart. And you are all all partners. Not just the pastors and deacons, but even the lay people. All of you are partners with me in grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the Gospel. This is an intensely personal declaration. Paul loves these people. He really, truly loves them. His heart, his deepest affection is for them. He counts them as beloved friends, as indispensable allies. And it's right for him to think this way of them, he says. To feel this about them. To prize them as he does. Because after all, when Jesus told his disciples in John 13-35, that people would know them, how does he say they'd know them? He says, people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Paul takes this very seriously. He knows Jesus is not kidding. This is how the Gospel will go forward when people can see that you, congregation, can lay all of your squabbling aside, all of your differences and your lifestyle and culture and political opinions and the way you decorate your houses and the trade you worked in and how old you are and what ethnicity you come from and what nation you descended from, that when you can lay all of that aside and love one another, people will know that this Gospel is something worth hearing. Church, in a world that eschews the commitment of loving other people, 
unless they're easy to love or you can get something out of them. Which is not love. In a world that cringes at the sincerity of telling another person that you love them. Be courageous. Be a Christian. Tell each other that you hold on to one another in your heart. It's the right thing to do. It's the grateful thing to do. And folks, it's the Christ-honoring thing to do. There is nothing commendable about being a part of a church and not loving the people in that church. There's nothing commendable about having perfect attendance, but no compassion or empathy for the people that sit around you. Love one another and remind each other often that you love one another. I heard a pastor say recently, nobody goes through life being too encouraged, being too loved, being too thanked. Nobody goes through life like that. After all, Paul says that we are all together partners, not only in the Gospel, but in this passage he says we are partners in grace. The word partner that he uses here can be translated various ways. Or it can be translated as a partaker. Somebody that partakes in something. And it can be translated in, a, in the word fellowship. You share unity. You share camaraderie, fraternity, sorority. You share that as a partner. And this is what binds Paul and the Philippians together as one. Here is the getting older Jewish Pharisee with Gentile, Eastern European, Roman-raised new believers in Jesus. Two disparate cultures. In fact, the Jews and the Romans have been enemies historically. But now Paul and these Philippians can be unified, can be together, because what binds them together, what binds us into unity as a congregation, even with Paul and the Philippians before us, is that we are partakers and participants in God's grace. None of us, as we heard in our responsive reading this morning, none of us have brought righteousness to the table. None of us have brought good works. It's by grace, through faith, and the faithful Lord Jesus that we have been saved. That's the thing that binds us together. That's the thing that unites us. Not anything about us, but rather His love and His grace for us. And it ties us together when things are good and when things are bad. When things are joyful or when things are sorrowful. So to Paul, what does a partner in grace look like explicitly? He says it looks like whether we are together in imprisonment or in our freedom defending and confirming the Gospel. Whether we are enslaved or free. Whether we are suffering or celebrating, our unity is in the Gospel of grace for sinners like us. R. Kent Hughes, who's the evangelical pastor in the Midwest, points out how J.R.R. Tolkien, his band of characters and the Fellowship of the Ring they're called a fellowship. That's what they describe themselves in this book that Tolkien writes. It actually resembles, and, and Hughes' mind, it resembles how the Philippian 
church and Paul see themselves as a fellowship of grace. They're a fellowship, not because it's always convenient to be, not because there isn't things to overcome. They're a fellowship through thick and thin, danger or peace, because they work and live together for one end. In Tolkien's story, you know, it's the destruction of this great evil ring of power. But for us Christians, the one end to which we work is being reunited with our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we invite others into that. We suffer shame and mockery and embarrassment and persecution as Christians all over the world when we invite other people into it because the joy of them being our former enemies become friends is the partnership of the Gospel for which we're working. Likewise, when Paul was in prison chains, the Philippians willingly chained themselves to Him in prayer and in financial gifts. When He was bound by this governmental authority, they could have said, well, He's a goner. Let's focus on ourselves. But they willingly bound themselves to Him. That's what it means to be a partner in grace. When one of us here suffers, whether it's loss, or sickness, or heartache, or pain, or discouragement, we are bound not just by duty, but by love as partners in the Gospel to weep with those who weep. This is how we defend and confirm the Gospel, Paul tells us. Not by being the most impressive lot in Lilburn, Georgia. Not by being the biggest church in all of Gwinnett County. Not by having the most youth programs or the largest building funds or the the most impressive community outreach. Rather, we defend and confirm the Gospel when we love one another well through it all. Showing all people around us that our hope is not built on us, but our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When we live like that as Christians, Partners in God's grace, whether we're suffering or we're celebrating, God as our witness, God as the one upon which we put our hand and swear, our affection for one another is divine. It's heavenly. It's from above. It's a glimpse of what Eden will look like again. Because the affection of Jesus Christ, Paul tells us, The affection of Jesus Christ Himself is what possesses Paul to love these people. As the head of the church, as our source of life, we now live out through His body as a congregation His love for one another. Christians, I want you to for just a moment think on this verse, on verse 8. Because in just a few moments, we're going to come to this Lord's Supper table that reminds us, that brings us back to Calvary. I want you to remember that we are all partners in grace. That we are partakers and fellowshippers together in Jesus Christ. I want you to think even this moment deeply on how this specific body of believers, not just church people in general, not just Christians you know in this world, But this congregation, Maranatha Baptist Church, 
how they mean more to you, I know, than many of you can express. I know they do. I know this is true. Because I hear you talk about this place. And I hear you talk about one another. And I know that when many of you look around this room, what you see is not just brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. What you see through them is God's own action in your life. His tangible love on display. His hands and feet in one another. Think of this. Think of how, for whether you've been here for a year, or 10, or 20, or 30, or for some of you, closer to 40. Maybe, well, I think we have a few charter members in here even. Think of how, or think of the love, rather, that it takes to be that committed. We're not a perfect people. We know we've been through our dust-ups. We've had our conflicts here. But think about how you stay true and faithful to one another. Folks, that's love. That's an important thing in our day and age. And here's where we get to the core of Paul's prayer in verse 9. He prays, and I pray this, that your love, your love that has kept you here at this church for however long, your love that has kept you volunteering to, to lead music, or to clean up the church grounds, or to make repairs, or to serve in the worship service, or to look after the children, or to go visit the sick and elderly, your love, Paul prays, will keep growing and knowledge and every kind of discernment. See, Paul not only prays that we as Christians love one another, but that our love would never stop growing. The sweetness of what we enjoyed last week when we all got together in fellowship should be the low point for us in the coming years as our love continues to grow and grow and grow through riches or poverty and sickness or in health, through good or through bad. Now, commentators point this out, that Paul, when he talks about love, he doesn't narrow it down. He doesn't give love an object. He doesn't say, love God specifically, or love your neighbor. That's because the love in you that is supposed to grow is a love that grows in every way. He simply prays that our love will grow. In other words, that we'd be like Jesus Himself who freely loved all who God puts in His path and puts in our path out of an overflowing abundance for our love of Christ. That our love for God would grow. That our love for each other would grow. That our love for our family and friends would grow. And even, if we can believe it, that our love for our enemies would grow. Now folks, today, as I've mentioned earlier in the service, is a day that many in the church call Trinity Sunday. After the story of Jesus begins all the way back in Advent, where we anticipate His promise coming into the world, where His light and love is born to us, in history on Christmas, and we follow Jesus through His life, His growth, His baptism, His ministry on into Holy Week, where we remember His triumphal entry into Jerusalem, His institution of the Lord's Supper, His washing the feet of the disciples, and His ultimate temptation and capture in the garden, 
His unjust trial and the violence and death of His cross. All of this leads us to Easter Sunday where He was resurrected from the dead. Where death is defeated. But the story doesn't stop there as we heard on Ascension Sunday. It continues on when we see Jesus returns to the Father's glory to rule and reign even now at this moment in human history. And then on into Pentecost where His rule and reign is spilled out now through the Holy Spirit so that normal average Christians like us may go out doing Gospel work and preaching Gospel truth in His name. That just happened to coincide with our 43rd anniversary service. It reminds us that God has equipped and empowered us all together to be partners in the Gospel and poured out the Spirit into each and every one of us so that we can be partners in His grace. Now all of this has led to what in church history has been called Trinity Sunday where we're reminded at the pinnacle of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, His ministry on earth, at the pinnacle of that points us back to who God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And how these three in one have worked together through Jesus, the Son, to bring us back into the fold. And so, we've thought deeply about what our salvation looks like. Now, I bring up all that to say this. The Apostle John tells us in chapter 4 of his first letter, he says this, he says three simple words, God is love. Now, when we hear that God is love, we often think of that in relationship to ourselves. God is love. Who's the object of His love? Me. Us. Sinners. Redeemed as the church. God is love. And that's true. But we didn't exist at some point. And John says God is love. Not God became love, but God is love. So what did it mean that God is love before the world and even the heavens existed? Did He become love at some point in history? No, God is love. He always has been love. From eternity past, God is love. So how did the eternal God love when there were no creatures to show His love to? Here's the beauty, folks. Because God is Trinity. He is tri-unity. One God, yet three persons. The great mystery of our faith. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit co-equally God, co-eternally God before the world ever began. God lived in perfect harmony and fellowship and love as the Holy Trinity. The Father loved the Son and the Spirit. The Son loved the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit loved the Father and the Son. A perfect community of love. God is. God was. God always will be love. And from the overflow and abundance and infinite love of God in eternity past, He created the world so that He may share His love with us. And the beauty of this is that He has made us, He has designed us, He has fashioned us and created us with this purpose that we might Show Him love and show one another love too. So Christians, when Paul tells us to grow in love, 
He's inviting us into the good news of Jesus afresh to experience the boundless, fathomless, eternally expanding love of God that is found in God Himself. My father, your former pastor, used to tell you this. He said, what else will heaven be but for eternity, for infinity, our exploration, our investigation of the love and character of God. Swimming through boundless depths of His love forever. That's what heaven will be when we get to see more and more of God's love and it never stops. It only gets sweeter and better forever. Now, that's true. And I'll add this to it. That our exploration of God's love, of His character, of who He is, that begins right now. And loving God more and more with each day. And in loving each other more and more with each day. That's what it means, Christian, when Paul says that we should grow in love. That the infinity that is our destination, we don't have to wait for the graveyard to experience it. We can experience it. And the first step we take today on our journey towards God. This love leads us into further knowledge, Paul tells us. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of God. His truth, His beauty, His goodness. And this love leads us into discernment, Paul tells us. Discernment of what? A discernment of how with wisdom and justice and compassion we can love one another well. See, when you love like a Christian, you love like Christ. You love like the Trinity. And that love doesn't shrink. It's not a love that becomes more exclusive. It's not a love that shows partiality or preference or prejudice. It's a love that keeps growing and growing and growing. Grow in love, Maranatha. There's no greater work that you can do than to grow in love. So that verse 10, you may approve, Paul tells us, the things that are superior. What does that mean? Frank Thielman, my old Greek and New Testament professor, says in his commentary that the superior things refer to the things that really matter. Christian, let me ask you this. What really matters in this life? What really matters? I think if we turn to Jesus and said, what, does this, what is this life about? What, is, what matters in this life? He would say to love God, and to love our neighbors ourselves. The, love the Creator. And because you love the Creator, first and foremost, you then show His love to His creation. Now the things that are passing away are these. The things that are not superior are these. Cultural controversies. Political bloviating. Trends on cable news and in social media. Who cares about these things? They don't matter. You know what does matter? Loving God. Loving your neighbor. On these things, Jesus says, hangs the wisdom of the law 
the truth of the prophets. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor in the same way that you love to spend time and attention and resources on yourself. Unlike this world, God who is an eternal spirit and people who are immortal souls, they'll last forever and ever. Those things are superior because they're eternal. Some people will spend their eternity in paradise with God and one another. But some people would rather spend their immortality away from God. Away from others. Only curved in on themselves in their perdition. But Paul says this, if you want to stand before the Lord, who is not only our King, but our Judge, if you want to stand before the Lord blameless and pure in the coming day of Jesus Christ, grow in love for things that matter. Because all else in this world will be washed away with fire. Grow in love for things that matter. God and the image bearers that reflect God. Paul concludes his prayer in verse 11, and be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now righteousness in the New Testament is the exact same word for justice. Same exact word. And we know that justice has to do with living ethically, morally, treating people rightly. Not showing prejudice. Not showing preference. Giving people what they deserve. Which is enough. Not too little. Not too much. This has to do with how we live our lives. Be filled with that fruit, Paul says. To be filled with the fruit of righteousness, you cannot be righteous unto yourself. Just like you can't love only yourself. So in a world that wants you to build up a portfolio or invest in real estate or cryptocurrency, that wants you to bet only on yourself, secure only what you need, spend time only on what you want, instead, focus on the things that really matter. Be filled with the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of the Spirit of the living God, Paul tells us in Galatians 5.22 and 23 is this. Do you want a, you want a checklist? Do you want a goal? Do you want a guide in how you can live the fruit of righteousness? Look at the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You want to know how you should go through this life? What you should be aiming for? What you should be investing in? Invest in this Christian. This is what we strive for in this life. Everything else. The mansions and monuments we build. The legacy and the dominions we leave behind will fall by the wayside. But love God and each other. Be at peace with one another instead of division. Let me say that again in an age where we all get online to fight one another. Be at peace instead of division. Be patient with those who are weak. Be kind with those that doubt. Be good to everyone. 
Be faithful to your family, your friends, and your church. Be gentle to the faint of heart. And control yourself so that you are always more willing to give than to get. This, Paul tells us in his prayer, is what the fruit of righteousness and justice looks like. And all of this, everything we've talked about this morning, only comes to us through Jesus Christ. And this, folks, is what gives God all the glory, all the honor and praise that we love and that we grow in that love. Let's pray. Lord, as we now share our testimonies and share Your table, help us to grow in love and to bear the fruit of righteousness so that we may do all of this for Your honor and glory and praise of Your name, our God and Father. In Jesus Christ, Your Son, by Your eternal and Holy Spirit. Amen.